0: the smart connector podcast which looks at the power of connection in business and life featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors we offer tips and advice to build your impact wealth and success attract others for all the right reasons and become a smart connector the architect of your amazing business and life
1: Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast. I have a very exciting guest for you today, Oscar Torres. Welcome, Oscar.
2: Thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me.
1: So, Oscar is the founder and director of one of the leading executive education programs in the world, where CEOs and founders come to master their challenges around change management, transform their companies and improve their businesses for a sustainable and prosperous future. And his program is consistently ranked by the Financial Times as number four in the world, which is a massive achievement. So he's an expert in B2B, business to business, And between 50 and 70% of the companies in the world don't actually sell to consumers, they sell to other businesses. So we're going to talk about that tonight and what the specific challenges and opportunities are in the B2B space so that businesses can generate a better, more predictable and scalable future for themselves. So great to have you here. I'm so looking forward to this conversation, Oscar.
2: Thank you Jane. Thank you for the intro.
1: Yeah, and you're in Barcelona, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. I'm based in Barcelona. Yes, beautiful beautiful city. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into it Oscar. I think before we actually start talking about B2B and the challenges and the opportunities of B2B, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah. I'm an engineer. Then I was a bunch of years in the in the industry. I was even an expat in China for a while. Then I moved to the software business. I'm still in the software business because even I'm lecturing at ESADE Business School. I'm just a practitioner, so a professional, which is teaching. And because I was in this software business, one of the things I really have to deploy was how to scale one business, right? I was hired by a scale-up like 20 years ago. And one of the missions was how to scale the business in Europe. It was an American company from Boston called SolidWorks. They wanted to scale globally, and they hired people like myself to do it at the European level at that time.
1: Yeah, so it's very, very different, isn't it, scaling a business in Europe? I know that American companies for a long time have wanted to penetrate Europe and and really replicate the success that they've had in the US. But there are the the different factors, aren't there, that influence success in Europe as a whole. Obviously, we've got lots of different countries in Europe, but it is different, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's a lesson to be learned by American companies, right? Because at the end of the day, when they approach the American market, they have a critical mass of amount of people and companies, same language, more or less the same culture. So you always hear that the Californian guy has nothing to do with somebody from from the East Coast. But the reality is that then when they land in Europe, we have such incredible amount of languages, such different amount of cultures that for them, it's really, really complicated. In fact, I have to tell you, for those that you have the interest to scale, I was publishing two years ago an article at Forbes uh, USA, about the scaling with channel partners. And I think that if you take a look, you will have some fun about uh, how nice it is how it's very, very nice, very, very, but very challenging to, to do it. I think it's uh, in some ways is the only way to do it eh? because something working in the States doesn't mean that it's going to work in France or in Germany or in Holland or in Spain. Right. So. Uh, it really requires some knowledge on how to how to do it country by country and what is the right approach in my case the approach was through channel partners looking for partners that they were local they understand they 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 were really understanding the local flavor yeah. and they were able to really represent you your strategy and your and your company so it's a very interesting topic
1: it is. Yes, definitely. And I've I've seen it so many times way back from when I was working in media and entertainment. And we were really working in a very much a global marketplace because television is a global industry. And so we were competing often against uh, West Coast and East Coast, you know, design agencies that were doing brand identity projects like us. Yeah, I mean, it was challenging for them and it was challenging for us. It was challenging for us to break into the U.S. market. It was challenging for them to break into the U.K. market or the European market. And I see that today. My daughter's working for a tech company, a U.S. tech company, and they're expanding into Europe. And, you know, the challenges never go away. It is complex. Interesting, but complex for sure.
2: I think that probably the most important thing to be done is to really understand that you're going to do it in a different way, almost country by country. Understand very fast that you will have to act local, right? And, and if you have a country manager in France or in Italy or in Germany, this person has to represent your company, but it, it has to become your eyes and your ears to really be able to translate not just the language, but as well, the, the way you do things at the local level, if not, is going to be really, really hard to, to expand.: It was interesting, yeah. Jane, because I, even at, at that time, I'm very proud about the job done translating the strategy. But at the same time, culture and go-to-market uh, approach was the same across, across the countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, same, same, but with a little translation to the local flavor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So Oscar, you know, you're an expert in B2B and this is a thing that I really want to get into tonight because a lot of the executive education, as we discussed just before you came on, is it uses B2C, so business to consumer examples from big businesses, for example, Apple, Microsoft, nike you know all all of those world leading brands that we've all heard of but they're all selling to consumers and what we were talking about is this amazing statistic that actually between 50 and 70 percent of all businesses across the world are not actually selling to consumers they're selling to other businesses and yet it is often overlooked by the executive education business schools or whatever so you've kind of plugged the market in terms of developing some expertise around B2B. And so I'd love to kind of get into that and what it is that, what it is that, that B2B businesses are facing today, what kind of challenges they have, what opportunities they have, you know, what the trends are really.
2: I think uh, just connecting w- to what you said, I think that one of the challenges that B two B CEOs and B two B executives have is their mindset. They are highly educated on B two C, and they uh-huh. are doing they are doing B two B. I take my own example. I did engineering, and after I went through my executive education program, ninety percent of the cases we discussed in the in that business school they were B two C,
0: ninety
2: percent. And uh, my life was B2B, we were selling software to executives that they were taking the risk to trust us, our solution and our company. And uh, from, I would say education point of view, I was naked. Uh, I was not really ready to uh, adapt my processes, my people, my data to to what it was really needed for the B2B relationship. I always talk about B2B relationships. When you have a company having a relationship with another company, your process, your people, whatever you are measuring has to be adapted to this fact. And uh, in general, this is not the case. As at, at the end of the day, an executive is somebody that is building a system that is able to produce value and it's able through building an organization that creates this value, right? If the executive on top of this company doesn't have the right concepts in mind, probably the company will be built in a way that doesn't really deliver the value we need for the companies we serve, right?
0: Well,
1: absolutely. And your work in your program, you work with founders and chief executives and People who are really spearheading the leadership of those companies, and of course, what happens at the top gets filtered down. So how do you actually change their mindset around you know the round B2 b and and how to behave in a B2B marketplace? Uh,
2: first of all, I, I try to make them reflect what are the key differences between B2 B and B2 C.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the key differences for me, and you will smile is the fact that when you buy an iPhone, it's your own money. But when an executive buys an ERP, a CRM, an expensive machine, this executive is doing with the company's money. And the fact that they do it with company's money, it makes that they are not buying a product. Mm. They are taking the risk to trust you. So in some way, a consumer is a buyer. But a a B2B client is not a buyer, is a risk manager.
1: Oh, well, that's a very interesting way to look at it.
2: Yeah, they are taking the risk because if they make a mistake, first of all, they can be fired. Mm -hmm. Second, their teams can have a penalty because this person is taking a bad decision. Mm -hmm. This is going to be costly for the company. Yeah, This is going to have Big implications. So yeah. look look at that, Jane, right? It's a very tiny detail, right? Because they pay with companies money. They are not buying a product. They are doing risk management to decide if they trust or they don't trust your solution, your company, and whoever is facing from the other side, right? And then you could say, okay, Oscar, how this affects to a B2B CEO? there is a big implications because the first thing that our attendees, they think about is, oh my God, do I have the right seller? Do I really position my solution for the people to feel that they can trust our solution? Do I really do the right marketing to position my company for this risk taker, believe that they can trust my company? So yes, with the first concept, they start thinking, okay it's not that clear that neither my people my company or my solution they are really aligned to B2B these three elements I just described is something I I named years ago like the B2b mix
0: uh-huh. I'm
2: sure I'm sure you heard about the marketing mix right from yeah. product yeah. price place promotion it, yeah, doesn't yeah. Work. it doesn't work in B2B yeah. The product is not that important. It's going to be the solution. The price is not going to be important. What is going to be very important is the value. It can yeah. be very expensive or very cheap depending on if we are providing value or not. The, the place in B2B, we don't need a place. We are going to meet you in your office if it's mm-hmm. needed. And the promotion, who cares about promotion in B2B? If I cannot justify that this brings value, you can give me the best promotion in the world I'm not going to take the risk to work with you. So no. when I was when I was in my 30s now I'm in my 50s and I was working for this this uh, scale up I was sitting down there listening to my professors talking to me about Kotler and the traditional marketing B2C products product price place promotion and I was thinking this doesn't work for me it doesn't work for my daily challenges What really works for me, and this is where I I create my own mix, which I call the B2B mix, the solution, the company, and the people. These are the real three elements that if you are a CEO in a B2B company, you need to be absolutely sure that your solution brings enough trust to the decision maker, your company brings enough trust, and the tricky point is your people really <laughs> brings trust over the table. Okay. So that's, yeah. this is one of the two first concepts I bring over the table when we kick off the program and, uh, and it's funny to see how the faces they change a little bit because you can listen the brain of the people, right? Like they start thinking, oh my God. So I'm not that sure that we have this trust generation really under control in a systematic way. And systematic is an important word. I'm an engineer, you know, I'm far, far to an artistic approach to anything. I like process. I like data. I like a method behind because every time you apply process and method and data, you will become predictable. And this is the previous step to become a scalable. Okay. So it's, that's the other thing that rings many bells in the in the in the mind of B2b CEOs right some people comes to you say Oscar what are your advices to scale right and my comment is always the same right you never never try to scale something if it's not still predictable because mm-hmm. if you if you scale something which is not predictable you will scale something bad so first step is really to try to scale something when you are absolutely sure that your business is predictable and then you can imagine Jane, the next question. So how, how I make my business predictable, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I'm hanging on your every word because so much of it rings true. So yeah. Okay. Go on then. How do you make the business predictable?
2: This comes like the second or the third concept, which is, and this is a little bit strange concept, right? But. I always make them reflect, do you approach to your clients when they already know that they have a problem? Or are you the one making and helping the client realize they have a problem? Uh-huh. Because, because if you are the one that, if you, you means your company, Mr. B2B CEO, right? If your seller, your pre-sales guy, your uh, business consultant, whoever has relationship with the client or is part of the relationship is helping to your client to realize they have a problem that they didn't know that they have it. Okay. When, when you don't know that you don't know, right? This is the perfect moment. When you are approaching somebody that they don't know that they don't know, what happens from a finance point of view is you multiply by 10, right? Your success rate. When you are reacting for a request for proposal, your success rate is going to be like like 5 to 7%. When your organization is the one that is helping to your client to realize that they have a problem that they didn't know, you multiply by 10 your chances. So then you already have another concept, which is BPS, better predictable and scalable. If you wanna be scalable, you need to be predictable first. And, oh, to be, uh, and to be predictable yeah and to be predictable the first step is you don't tr- you don't have to try to sell more you have to try to do better business and to do better business you need to reflect if you are too late in the relationship if you are too late in the relationship you are always playing at the five percent success rate okay yeah and and when I'm just sharing that with these CEOs, you see that the, their faces, they are change- they are just changing because then I say, okay, so are you selling to those companies when they already realize the problem or are you helping to them to realize that they have a problem? Guess what is the answer? 90% of them, they're telling you, we have a good business. A bit that is good, but it's true. We work too hard. We work too hard. We, we we manage 100 deals to get five. And this is too much work. So that's the other point, right? Are you doing a better business? Do you organize your company to do a better business? Are your process, your people, your data aligned to really do this better business? And in many cases, the answer is no. And in many cases, they look to the seller. The seller is a sub-product, product of all this thing. The seller is something you need to have, you know, but it's a tiny part of the problem. It's like the last mile, you know, it's the last mile of the problem. At the end of the day, you, you really need to look the B2B company in an holistic way. Do I have the right growth strategy? Do I hire the right people? right? Too much, Jane?
1: No, I mean, look, look, everything that you've been saying has been setting off fireworks in my brain, which is (laughs) what always happens when I get a really fascinating guest like you. So the thing that I'm interested in to explore a little bit further is something that I literally had no, I'd not even thought about before because, you know, obviously I've had a lot of sales training. We talk about people being Problem-aware, well, obviously not problem-aware, but problem-aware, solution-aware, and then product-aware, and all, all these kind of different levels of awareness. But unaware obviously comes at the bottom of the pyramid, if you like. And I think what you're saying is that, correct me if I'm wrong, that when you are selling to an audience that is unaware... And you actually educate them to make them understand that there is a problem, then the conversion rates are much higher than if you're selling to an audience that is solution or product aware or solution aware, right? That is fascinating.
2: Yeah, it's ten times higher. But you have this you have yeah. this situation around very close to you. Compare a doctor and a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. If you compare a doctor with a pharmacist, if you're a doctor and you go to a wedding and you sit close to Jane and and, they, hey, Jane, how are you, you you look tired. And you start making questions, right? And by after two, three questions, you find the, the, the reason why Jane looks tired, right? Perhaps Jane didn't realize that she's not sleeping very well because she's, you know, when you sleep that you do this thing with your with your mouth and then perhaps,
1: grinding your teeth or something. Yeah,
2: You're doing like that. And then you don't connect that with the fact that when you wake up at 10, you have some head, some pain here, and then some pain mm-hmm. here. And mm-hmm. finally you have a horrible day. Yeah. This doctor is the one helping to you to realize and connect the dots. This doctor is kind of agnostic to the solution, but this doctor is the one that you will trust first. When you already know the problem and you go to the pharmacy and you look for a medicine, you are going to talk about product price, but you already know the problem and you already look for the product.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you need
2: to be lucky for this client to get into your pharmacy, which is super hard. It's becoming more and more hard. Okay. So, but the point is not about sales. eh? I'm not talking about sales. I'm talking about if you're a CEO yeah. Do you have the right people to approach this way or not? Do we hire the right people? Do we have the right culture in our in our company to be more curious, to be more analytic, to be less self-oriented, to think about that our ultimate goal is to help somebody that has a problem that they didn't know? Yeah. So it's a top-down decision. I don't care. I don't, I almost don't care about sales, sales training or sales methodology. This is the last mile. The Mm -hmm. problem here is that I always, I always tell them something that uh, one day I will be in trouble, but I always say, you have the business you deserve. Yeah. And and you have the beat that you deserve. And you have the sellers you deserve. (laughs) So you don't, yeah, if you don't like your business, you need to reflect internally. You don't don't blame on on the market or on the geopolitical situation or on the COVID. COVID is for everybody. Geopolitics is for everybody. They manage what you can manage, right? And what you can really manage is the way your company is organized. What are the key processes in your company, right? So yeah. uh, it's a, it's much more about. It's much more about management than any other thing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, I always do kind of default to looking at things from a sales and marketing perspective, because obviously, that's my background as well. And I was just reflecting on if you have a product that is is really answering a problem that people have not realized existed before and of course you know many unicorn companies like i mean uber and i mean lots and lots of fantastic tech unicorns have been built on this very premise but it really requires a certain a certain culture doesn't it it within the workforce in order to be able to go out there and actually bring this opportunity to the world as opposed to just going out there and saying we've got a different and better version of x or y or z so i can understand completely what you're saying about you know this does come from the top down doesn't it
2: absolutely absolutely and uh, don't forget that there is a pr- another problem with b2b companies in many cases they are absolutely built around a product. Mm -hmm. it's an engineer having an an engineer a software engineer a product engineer having an idea okay uh, i have a great idea about this product and uh, and for sure if this product brings a value and somebody is ready to pay for it we will be able to push the product the problem is its amount of work so if you are too late to the problem, the client is going to be so highly educated about the problem that probably somebody was helping to educate them on the problem, which means that you are late to this party. You know, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm teaching in the MBA as well. People is more junior than in the executive education program, that they are definitely senior. And then, in the, if, if you allow me, I'm going to share with you the, the analogy I use, which is definitely, absolutely clear, right? Yeah. I just tell them, let's imagine that the girl or the boy of your life, it's organizing a party on Friday afternoon, right? And uh, in Barcelona, a Friday a party on Friday would be something like 10 p.m., right? Not in UK, I know. <laughs> but let's imagine... Let's imagine that, that uh, the boy of your life organized a party at 10 p.m., right? And I, I do the question to them, when would you arrive to the party? 9.30 or 1 a.m. in the morning? <laughs> and that's exactly the same. If this is a client of your life and you want to win this account, you cannot arrive at 1 a.m. You should arrive at 9.30 because at <laughs> 9.30 there is Nobody. You can talk with her or with him, you can, you can qualify and understand the context. You can understand what is important for this person. You can influence the environment. You can distribute the furniture in the right place. And if you are very good dancing tango, then (laughs) you will be able to influence the playlist. And you know, Jane, what is going to be the music at 1. AM when competitions arrive to the party tango. Uh-huh. And, they, and they will arrive to the party with their with their salsa shoes, and they will not be able to dance your music, because you have been there so early in the party that the 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 the, the, the you already won three years ago three hours ago. So it's a little bit the same. The, here, the reflection for those CEOs is: Are we always late in the relationship? I never talk about sales process. Yeah. For me, sales process is like that. Yeah. It's relationship is like this.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So I have a a question, which is this thing about being late to the party, because I'm sure that by the time most founders or CEOs or whatever, you know, they rock up to your executive education program. You know, they've, they've usually got a product in place already, right? So they have a business. That's why get your help. A lot of the time they will be late to the party, won't they? Because we can't all be really innovative and, you know, crack that solution that nobody else has found. I mean, that's quite a hard thing to do, isn't it, in today's world? So, so what actually happens when somebody, that light bulb moment uh, happens and they're like, do you know what, that's where my problem arises. I'm late to the party. What do they do then?
2: I think that uh, first thing they have to do a due diligence about their teams facing the client. Okay. Who is facing my client? If it's a software business, you are going to, and and if you are selling something, let's say, not complex, but uh, something that requires some understanding from both sides, it's easy that you will have a pre sales guy, a business consultant, an account executive. Okay. So, first thing that I recommend to them is uh, analyze whoever is facing with a client and deep dive how they behave in front of the client, Mm -hmm. okay, because sometimes you are late to the party, but uh, even if you are not George Clooney, you have a chance. You can uh, open a different conversation Mm -hmm. to what was the conversation that they, they were having in this party. The thing is that you started from a very bad place for sure, right? I think you were you were talking about the product. It's funny because yesterday I did a keynote and I had a research and development director from a company based in Colombia in the chocolate business. Hmm. And he said, "Oscar, how all these things affect to our research and development?" Be- and then I said, "Hey man, you know what? All this philosophy of putting the client in the center, it should be your philosophy. If you do research and development just looking to yourself and inside your company, you are going to do wonderful things that nobody that will fix no problems. Be problem oriented. So uh, n- nobody cares about our products in B2B. Nobody cares. They just care if they f- if this fix a problem that they have.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we are not the buyers of our products, are we?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And, but this happens many times. eh? And I think in many cases it's because I had a boss that used to say, never fall in love, never fall in love with your own ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the beginning of the end. Uh So it's a little bit the same for the product. It's great. You, you, you know, the other day it was funny because I had I, have, I had a good friend, she's a she, she did engineering with me, and now she's an important executive in automotive, and she said to me, you know what, the other day I signed a contract, 1.2 million euro contract, and I thought about your B2B mix, and I said, okay, well, tell me more, and she said, yeah, for do it to compliance, I had to consider five options, so I took five suppliers. I did a little benchmark. I compared the five products between you and me, Oscar. For me, they look almost the same. And I ranked them from one to five. And she said, and I bought the number three. And I said, and why? So, and, and the number three was fixing the problem. And she said, yeah, of course, the number three, the number four and the number five, man. For you guys that you are on the other side, You are very, very proud about your products, but for me, I have no time to do an incredible benchmark to compare product by product. So number three was more than okay. And then I asked her, so why did you buy number three? And she said, listen, she said, because I cannot imagine working for five years with seller of product one or seller from product two. Can you imagine the drama for those company one and company two for the CEOs of those two companies can you imagine the drama? the drama is from a product ranking point of view these guys I'm sure that they are super proud mm-hmm. to have first in cl- first and second in the ranking the best products but from a from a b2B relationship point of view they totally fail in the people business which is another concept I share with with these guys. You yeah. need to see you are selling products. Yeah, you are selling people.
1: Oh, and it's not, so much! Yeah,
2: it's not because we. It's not because I'm an, I'm a nice person, which I am. It's because decision makers they buy people. They do. They do. they they they, they trust or they don't trust your people. So you better become a people master.
1: Yes. I I mean I totally agree with that and and of course the the size of the contracts is, on the whole they're going to be vastly more than a consumer purchase of a household product so therefore as you said the relationship could go on for years and it's going to be quite an intimate relationship if you're spending a huge amount of money which of course if it's some kind of big contract i mean our our uh, projects range from 250,000 to a million generally is a typical purchase size and and they could the projects could last for a year you know you're going to be dealing with the same person or the same team of people for quite a long time on some very high stakes stuff and so i completely i completely get it and i completely agree really really important and powerful isn't it that trust in those relationships
2: at the end makes sense because you know how long it how long it takes to sell a car is 40 minutes uh-huh and uh, if you're selling a fleet to a company it could be four months
0: yeah
1: well so that makes sense
2: in 40 minutes you don't care about the seller
1: no <laughs> yeah in four
2: months and then four years of ownership of this contract, you care about the seller. You care about the seller. You care about the post-sale service. You care about the accounting department. Is this, these guys are nice or not when they claim because we didn't pay the last, the last invoice. You care about the company itself. So this Mm -hmm. is why in B2B, you cannot tell to the client, no, no, stay with the product. Don't interact with my people.
1: Yeah, they, they'd find that kind of strange, wouldn't they? <laughs>
2: absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's just so so fascinating. I've, I'm really, I'm really, really loving this conversation. There's so many kind of nuggets there. So, Oscar, tell us what kind of industries do your, you know, do do your people kind of come from when they, when they join your it's uh, a zoo. program. It's a zoo. Yeah.
2: It's a, I mean, any kind of industry, but any kind of industry, any size of industry. It was funny because in the two two editions ago, we had the CEO of a 1 billion company mm-hmm. sitting down close <laughs> to the CEO of a startup that they were less than 300 K. Yeah. But they have the same problems. Yes. They they have the same problems. They they need to reflect on how to organize their their company for better, predictable, and scalable business. They need to reflect if their culture is the best one to be valued by the client. The only difference is that when you have a when you have a startup, it's easy to fix it. You have time, you have flexibility, you have freedom, you don't have budget. But but it's easy to fix it. And when you have a one billion company, then, it's, then you have more resource, but then it's uh, what is going to really, 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 really be hard. And this is the other topic you were mentioning at the beginning is change management.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
2: the main, main, main concern when people, it's leaving the program. In many cases, I remember one guy sat- telling to me like at the end, it's, it's quite short. It's 40 hours, right? And one of the last sessions, this guy approached to me and the guy said to me, Oscar, you know what? I'm, I'm very happy and I'm very unhappy. Oh, really? And I said to the guy, okay, I'm, I'm concerned because at the end of the day, you're my client. So why are you are so unhappy? And the guy said, because I've been working wrongly for the last 20 years. And he said, hey, come on, John, man, you have a 5 million euro company, 20% EBITDA. It's quite nice. So why are you unhappy? I'm sure you work great. And the guy said, which is very interesting, the guy said, I'm not unhappy about the result. I'm very unhappy about the effort. I worked too hard and not very smart to get this result.
0: Oh, I didn't
2: meet. I didn't meet my childs. I didn't see how my grandchilds grow up, because I was working sixteen hours per day, to get a five million bus- euro business with twenty percent EBITDA, and probably I should have worked a little bit in in a in a more smart way. And then I asked to the guy, so so why are you are happy then? And, and the guy said, because I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I'd say, what are you going to do tomorrow? And the guy said, I'm going to fire my sales manager.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Oh, oh my God. Don't, don't,
2: don't talk, to, don't talk to, to, to him about me, right? The point was that the guy said, uh, one of the things I said about uh, sales managers, if you want to scale, sales managers are going to be key. Yeah, and in many cases we make the mistake to promote as a sales manager the best seller, and then you lose a, ba- a good seller and you win a bad sales manager. A oh, good sales definitely. manager, yeah, a good sales manager is somebody that is able to make sellers. It's somebody able to produce sellers, and uh, if you are CEO in a B two B company and you are listening to that, this is a good reflection. Yeah do we have sales manager my sales manager brings me a scalability because it's a person that is able to bring from from nothing to a great seller it's this person who is able to produce sellers because if you have this person there it's that is rock and roll it's a very important part of the scalability right
1: yeah definitely i mean i i was uh... I was always a star salesperson. I was not the sales manager. So there is a very, very big difference in terms of the skill set, I think. Yeah. Definitely.
2: Did you have a good a good sales manager then?
1: Well, look, I mean, it, to be honest, it was a long time ago because I'm not really a... I didn't stay a salesperson for very long. I only did it as a, a kind of stopgap, really. I mean, I'm more of a kind of, uh, you know, a creator and a more of a founder myself, really. My time in sales was really important and quite transformative for me because I think it's very good to be at the sharp end of business and of making profit. I think I learned a lot in the time that I did it. And I was fortunate to work under a very, very good sales manager. Uh, He was just, uh, I don't really know how to describe him, but he was somebody that made me understand why great sales teams need good sales managers they they need managers motivators people to you know stand behind them really and he was that so i was fortunate to to have that and i was also fortunate enough to realize that that was not going to be my destiny in life I was not going to be somebody who was, you know, sitting on the sidelines behind other people. I I had to be out there doing it myself. But yeah. I think that
2: this, I think that this topic is, it's a eye opener as well for many CEOs because sometimes they are concentrated. I remember one attendee from an American company and after the program, I take the time to do a debrief with every company and. I remember talking to this person, the guy said, okay, one key element is that we have done many efforts to develop our sales team and we forgot about our middle management. Mm-hmm. And investing over our middle management is going to bring much more scalability because at the end of the day, you you don't care. You, you can have sellers going through the company, staying three, five years, who cares if yeah. I have if I have the right person producing these people, then we are, we are good. My point mm-hmm. here was, there is this, I don't know how to say in English. There is this myth, which is some good sellers, they are born. I cannot disagree more. You can have, you can have almost everybody becoming a good sales professional in B2B. It will depend on the mentor. If you have a good mentor, a good manager, you can really make somebody to be a great professional in B2B.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very important point because if you, if you are a star salesperson, you can't do it alone. You, know, you do need people behind you who are supporting you because it's actually quite a tough job because along with making those sales comes rejection and rejection is quite grueling when you get it every single day and if you're doing sales all the time then a big part of it will be rejection and that is where a good manager comes in because they are the people that you know they pick you back up they send you back out again equipped with everything that you need to succeed it's it's huge absolutely huge i totally agree with everything that you say We need to recognize those people who are doing a really, really important job, whether they are, you know, standing behind a sales team or, you know, managing and motivating anybody else. They really are very valuable people and without often getting the recognition that they deserve. Because, of course, everybody loves a star salesperson, don't they?
2: Absolutely. You know, the other point where CEOs, when when they start reflecting how to transform their B2B companies to achieve this better, predictable, and scalable business. Yeah. Uh, It's HR department or Uh the the people part. Uh, They start thinking and reflecting what type of sourcing they are using for newcomers. What type of, what are the recruitment processes, the hiring? I don't know if it's American or English. But what is the hiring process they follow? What type of onboarding they are using to uh, to welcome newcomers to the company is yes. so important.
0: Oh yeah, because
2: for a B two C company, who cares? You buy an iPhone, you don't care who works in Apple, right? For a B two B company, when you buy, when you make an important investment in what in a machine, in software, in professional services. You really care about people working there because it's very easy that you will interact with them in the future, right? And, uh, and this is like an aha moment for some people. It's like we were thinking in a selfish mode a little bit about talent, but in fact we market talent and we market culture.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's yeah, just amazing. I mean, just so many interesting points. I, I really enjoyed our conversation, Oscar. So, thank you so much for joining us. How would people get in touch with you? I'm sure that there're going to be lots of people that are interested in your executive program and so what's the best way to find you and speak to you, Oscar? Uh, I uh...
2: You know, I, I think I was discussing yesterday with somebody because I was giving a business card with my email and so on. And at the end, I, and and very fast, I told them, you know what, LinkedIn.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: Write me. Of write course. me. On link,
1: write the B two B platform. <laughs> yes. Write me
2: on LinkedIn. It's going to yeah, be better because in be. email I'm getting I'm getting too much stuff on LinkedIn. If you make a comment, hey, I was uh, I I was listening to your podcast with Jane. I will be very, very happy to connect with them. So you just uh, look for me on LinkedIn, Oscar Torres at ESADE, Executive Education, and you will find me for sure.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening, Oscar. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I've really enjoyed our conversation together. And I look forward to following you and, yeah, just seeing more of your content as it comes out. And thank you again.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. It has been a great time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one to one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com slash masterclass and I'll show you how.